Let me have you turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, and as Brad mentioned, we end our journey uh, this morning. Whenever you're an expository preacher, this always feels like an accomplishment. So, you know, whenever you, you start at the beginning and you get to the end. Um, but while you're making your way there, let me just remind you of something. I always think that um, every once in a while we need to do this. You walk through the door, and because we're people of routine and we need routine, right, to structure our lives, have a little order and stability, to remember why it is you come. Now, you might be in a different spot. If you're here investigating the claims of Christ, be clear about that, right? If you're here because you're honoring your parents, um, be clear about that. But if you've been following Jesus for a long time, you walk through the door, just remember uh, who is at the center of everything. Uh, clarity is key in life. I mean, sure, routine helps, but it's nice to know what that routine is for. Clarity is a key in life. We can be inundated with life and put ourselves at the center of everything. We can drift and feed into our passions and find ourselves at the center of everything, but when we're clear, we know we're not the center of everything. And Jesus says that in this passage we're going to look at this morning. Uh, he, and he says, in essence, to every disciple what he says to Peter here. Like, listen, you want to know what to do with your life? You, it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to start thinking about other things and lesser things. You want to know what you should do? You should follow me. That's what you should do. You should follow me. And the passage today might seem like an interesting uh, way to end the fourth gospel, because let's put it this way. So this is what we're going to read. We're going to read a conversation. Now, it's sort of interesting because in the gospel of John, we've seen all these signs and this incredible teaching and this interaction with uh, Jesus' opponents. And then there's this really tense trial, and he's crucified, and he's buried, and he rises from the dead. And he has these appearances in victory of the revelation that he is the risen Christ. And then we get a conversation. Seems a little anticlimactic, but there are lessons here. There's a reason that this passage is where it is. And in part, we look at Peter as a paradigm. So what we're going to do this morning is what we aim to do just about every Sunday morning, and that's understand and apply. Let's look at God's Word together, make sure we understand it. And since it's God's Word... Let's position ourselves to receive it, to submit ourselves to it. All right, so John chapter 21, verses 15, all the way through the end. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. 
Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers and sisters that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that you remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, your word is true as you reveal yourself. It bears your honesty, your clarity, your knowledge, and your authority. Help us to understand it and to apply it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when we get to the conclusion of John's gospel, and obviously that's where we are, it ends in this way that Peter is having a conversation, or, or Jesus is having a conversation with Peter. And we see that the apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, joins them. And what it's about, it's really Jesus is addressing some unfinished business with Peter. He starts with the hole. If you remember in the passage before, the guys are out fishing, uh, led by Peter. They didn't catch anything all night. Jesus makes a pronouncement, tells them, you know, cast your, your net on the, on the right side of the boat. They pull it in. They can't haul it in. And then they have uh, a, a breakfast of fish together. Um, so, you know, everyone's in good spirits uh, by the time they get to this passage. But it's clear that whenever they're having this conversation, Jesus goes from appearing to the group to actually needing to address something, not to the group, but to this individual, to Peter. And there are you know, a few parts of it. And the first part is that he restores Peter, verses 15 through 17. The guy failed, and he fell. And if Peter needs anything, it's this. He needs Jesus to talk to him, to bring him through, and to restore him. Like I said, they had finished breakfast, so it's connected to that part of the passage. And did you notice, if we're going to really understand the framework of it, the first time Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? He asked it this way. Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Now, there are a couple of logical possibilities, but it's clear here that what Jesus is talking about is, right, there's, there's uh, several guys at the breakfast. Do you love me more than these guys do? Now, is this true about you, Peter? Are you somebody that you love me so much, we're sitting in this circle here, uh, you know, eating fish for breakfast, and as we're talking to each other and all of that, you're the guy who loves me more than anybody else does. Is that who you are? Are you, are you better? It's like, sort of like the, the I, I know this would never happen, but a person comes to church. And we sing praises to God and we celebrate his greatness and goodness. And maybe somebody looks around and goes, I, think, I just think I might love God more than these people do. This might be a better Christian. You know? Peter, is that you? Are you the guy in this group? Are you the best guy? You love me more than these other guys do? Now, why he asks is pretty clear too. If it, just in general, the disciples have this issue. They have this kind of competition with each other. Sort of like grade school students 
You know, who does the teacher like the best? Whenever you get into junior high, you get over that. But in grade school, it's like, who does the teacher like the best? Am I her favorite? Am I his favorite? And the disciples ask each other all the time. They argue about this, in fact. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? Who's best? I'm better than you. But Peter, in particular, seems to have participated with this, right? He says something like this in John, but I'm going to quote what he says in Matthew. Jesus is talking about his upcoming death, and he says, listen, fellas, you're all going to fall away. You're You're not as strong as you think you are. You're going to fall away. And everybody else is quiet. It seems like maybe they're not sure of themselves. But Peter, Matthew 26, this is what he says. No way, paraphrase, no way, though they all fall away, I will never fall away. That's who I am. I do love you better than these guys. I'm the best disciple. And so, you know, Peter is asked by Jesus if he loves, you know, Jesus more than the other disciples do. And the reason is that's what Peter said. And that's the way he acted. And then if you remember the story, what he did, he denied Jesus three times. That's how he acted on it. And so this plays out like a Q&A. Jesus asked these three questions, and they're very similar. It's like a Groundhog Day of questions. You know, if you're, uh, if, if you're in law and you're in trial, you'll follow up sometimes with the same question. There can be an objection to this, asked and answered. But the response to that, if somebody doesn't answer the question, you say they didn't answer the question, Your Honor, direct the person to answer the question. And Jesus asked Peter essentially the same question three times, with some little variations. And so one of the things that we should ask ourselves is, is there any significance to the variation that Jesus uses when he asks essentially the same question three times? Do you love me? Um, Here's the variation. Like, for example, he says, feed the sheep versus tend the sheep. He says, sheep versus lambs. He says, uh, when the word, the Greek word, you've probably heard this, he uses the... uh, Agapao versus phileo, different words for love. Is there any, and there, and there have been arguments about this. What, what Peter is, or what Jesus is trying to convince Peter of is that he, he doesn't have this level of love, he has this level of love. Is there any truth to that? Short answer is not really. That isn't the way you should look at it. There's a kind of parallelism that John comes up uh, with. It's just how his brain works as a, as a Jewish man. And he, he likes to vary his language by using synonyms. So he does it here. What's the difference between sheep and lambs? Probably not much. Tend and feed. Probably not much. They complement each other, right? Maybe the more probative question. Why does he ask him three times? If, if he's not asking Peter three different questions, or if he's not giving Peter three different charges, why does he ask him three times? Well, because Peter denied Jesus three times. And if you look at Peter's answer, Peter's answer is not, yeah, that's right, I'm better than these guys. His answer is, you know I love you. He relies on the Lord Jesus' knowledge. There's no self-righteousness now. He's relying on, you know the truth. You know who I am with all my failings, Lord. You know I love you. And Jesus then follows that with an assignment. It's kind of cool whenever you think about it, but it's also this. When, when, Pe- when Jesus restores Peter, he's restoring Peter to himself and to the work to which he's called him. But he's not giving him a position or a title as much as he's given him a work, a ministry. 
a role. He doesn't say be something. He says do something. In other words, not be an apostle, be somebody important, take on the king of the church title. What's he tell him? They're, they're these people I've died for. They're these people I love so much I died for them. I brought them into my kingdom. You take care of them. Right? You pour out your life to make sure the people I died for are good. You, your presence should make them better. So here's another question that helps us understand this. He's doing it publicly. They're sitting around you know, eating breakfast together, and Jesus raises this up in front of the guys. Now, why does he do this in front of the guys? Well, put yourself in a fellow disciple's shoes, all right? So Jesus brings this up. Uh, what if Jesus didn't ever address this to your knowledge? What would you think? Peter, uh, after the resurrection of Jesus, he uh, starts working in ministry and all of that. Wouldn't you tend to go, who's that guy think he is? I mean, he denied Jesus. He was a sellout. He talked big and he flaked out. I mean, I don't think he should have that role. I think he disqualified himself. He doesn't deserve that position in the church. That's who he is. Peter boasted and fell publicly. Jesus restores him publicly. So emotionally, for Jesus to bring it up, this sensitive information, right, uh, and up in front of everybody, might have hurt his feelings a little bit. You know, it would be a little bit extra embarrassing. But practically, while it, it might hurt emotionally, it helps in his ministry, right? Because everyone knows that Peter is where he is. Why? Because he elbowed his way? No, because Jesus said, this is where you're going to be. And you're not going to argue with Jesus. Jesus put him there, all right? So the, the first part of it, and we think, what, what a beautiful aspect that the Lord Jesus singles out Peter in this particular thing, and he restores him. He restores him to himself, and he restores him to the work. Here's the follow-on. second part of the conversation as he's addressing this unfinished business with Peter is he tells Peter, you're going to die. Not the way that I could tell you you're going to die. He's very specific about it. In verses 18 and the beginning of verse 19, he foretells his death. And he says this there. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then this parenthetical comment that John makes said this, he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Now, this is really helpful for the context. Why is John writing all this? Keep in mind that by the time this fourth gospel is written, that Peter's already dead. All of this has already taken place and John is about to. Um, so many of the readers are going to know this and there's this prophecy of Jesus and there's this parallel of contrast here. When you're young, when you're old. Peter, this is who you were whenever you were young. You did what you wanted, right? You, you made your choice. You dressed yourself. You went wherever you wanted to go. Nobody stopped you. All bluster. Now, some of you young guys here, some of us are tweeners, some of you young guys, one of the things that's interesting is that the energy you have, you're not going to keep. The way your body feels right now, the way you can move things right now, you're not going to keep. So there's a natural part of this. If you don't think it's possible for you to ever get home, you're, you're not somebody written about in Greek mythology, okay? Your body is going in one direction. In a fallen world, strength always goes where? Strength always goes to weakness. That's where it goes in a fallen world. And so in one sense, we, this might resonate with us. Like, listen, Peter, as a young guy, you were brash. Nobody's going to tell you what to do. You're that strong. And if you think you're that guy, I'm just telling you, you're not that guy. You're not that guy. There is nobody who's that guy. You are a guy who needs Jesus, 
Um, But whenever you're young, you think you're something that you will not prove to be by the time you get to be old. But that isn't what Jesus is telling him. He's prophesying. You're going to, whenever you're old, it's going to be the opposite. You're not going to go where you want to go. You're going to stretch out your hand. Somebody else is going to address you, and you're going to go where you don't. They're going to take you where you don't want to go. And everybody knows what that means. That's why John wrote the, the way he did, right? He said this to show what, by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. Because here's the thing. That little phrase, when you're going to stretch out your hands, in their context, everybody knew that that meant mm, crucifixion. And when John comments, uh, it tells us a couple of things. One is the way Peter is going to die. Now, we have some corroboration of this in church history, that he's going to die by crucifixion. That's what Peter, or that's what Jesus is referring to. But also how, given his recent failure, right? I mean, he seemed like a flake. He seemed like a guy who talked big and then ran when it got tough. How would he do in death? And Jesus is saying, not only are you going to die a very tough death, But the way you're going to die, you're going to glorify God in that death. It's a pretty good turnaround. Pretty good turnaround by grace. And then here's the final uh, part that as as Jesus is interacting with Peter, uh, Peter brings up this problem that he has with what Jesus said, right? Hey, Peter, you're restored. You're going to get back to work. Uh, Also, you're going to die a really tough death. Uh, It's going to glorify God. And Peter, as they go uh, on the walk, is like, hey, what, what about the other guy? You know, my chief competitor on who the greatest disciple is, the, you know, the soon-to-be Apostle John. And so P- Jesus just rejects Peter's comparison uh, at the end of verse 19 all the way through verse 23. And it starts at the end of verse 19 that Jesus looks to Peter and he says, follow me. Now, there's kind of this, whenever you read it, you don't know if this is literal or figurative. Like literal, so we're going to get up and walk. Turns out they are going to get up and walk. Uh, but it's also figurative. I'm the master and you're going to follow me. We see this mirrored in verse 22. John enters the narrative then. It says, you know, that as they're walking, Peter looks back and he notices him. And, you know, while they're talking and all that, and, and John is, uh, you know, identifies himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. See that before, I think, in verse 7. But it also is a little phrase that was used in chapter 13. They're at the table. Um, you know, it's the Last Supper. Judas is announced as uh, he's going to betray him, but they don't know who it is. And Peter looks at John and he says, ask the Lord who's going to betray him. So he's connecting all those things. What does that tell you? That tells you that whoever's writing this is a good source. He's close to Jesus. He's close to Peter, too. He knows. Right? He's a first-hander. But then we get to the comparison game. Right? So uh, it's, it's very familiar by this point, not just with them, but, but you know, in our own lives. All the Gospels have this. But in verse 21, Peter looks back and he goes, well, what about him? Now, what's he saying? Okay, you just said I'm going to die. He knows what he's talking about whenever he says this. I'm dying and stuff, but like, maybe that's not so fair if John gets a better treatment than I do. And Jesus says to him two things in verse 22. Uh, look at that with me. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. First thing that Jesus tells Peter is this, it's none of your business. That's my choice. It's not yours. Remember all the things that came out of the choices you made? Not so good. 
As the Christ, I'm batting a thousand. Let's go with me, not with you, Peter. Why don't we do that? It's none of your business. What is it to you? If, if this is what I want, why wouldn't you want what I want? You're a disciple, right? Do that. Want what I want. But the second thing he tells him is not just this, that part of it's none of your business. Make sure you tend your own business. I just restored you. Do what I told you to do. Past track record, that's going to be plenty for you. That's going to be more than enough. You're going to have your hands full obeying me rather than worrying about what your, you know, your rivals for my affections will do. And then he tells him this, you follow me. You wonder what you should do? Get distracted, gets all right, like, I don't know, I wish I was in a better place. You need clarity? You follow Jesus. John comments on this, verse 23, the saying spread abroad. This is part of the reason he writes this. They're going to have questions about this, uh, that the disciple was not to die. Yet, that's not what Jesus said. What he said was, if it's my will, what's that to you? And so, some thought that because Jesus said this, that John would never die. That essentially, John's life would be this kind of window, this time frame in which they would be able to predict that Jesus would return. It was a carefully reasoned out uh, thought. And what, another way of saying it, it was a carefully reasoned out error. Now, history is fooled with carefully reasoned out errors. They just, they're appealing because they seem so smart. Uh, church history is filled with carefully reasoned errors. What's clear, what's in the middle, if you wonder, like, what should I stick with? Stick with what's in the middle and then work your way out from there, right? If you, if you want to be a strong disciple, if you want to be faithful, stick with what's in the middle and then work your, your way out from there. Not on things like this, not on secondary issues uh, like this that bring up a lot of guesswork. Um, so he's clearing it up. These, these are questions that people would have about John and Peter, but I want to tell you one more thing. If, if you're going and you're here this morning and you're in that kind of, not skeptics chair, maybe it's not like that, but maybe you're trying to figure it out. And you go, so far, this is what we've seen. Uh, Jesus was uh, tried, he was crucified and killed, he was buried and he raised. But the two appearances so far are very impersonal. They're almost ghost-like, right? Very vague. And, and you might have this thought in your mind. I just want to connect the dots for you. If you look at those, because they don't have a lot about their interactions, that what a person could say, if you just base it off of those first two appearances, could the disciples have been mistaken? You know, was it just some kind of a magical, like I said, ghost-like appearance? No. No. I mean, when somebody cooks fish for breakfast, first of all, I'm on the record. I think that's something you remember. But also, the interaction that they have, they know it's the Lord Jesus. And as they're walking and talking, he's got a knowledge of who they are and the history that they have together. They recognize him. They know exactly uh, what's up. And so, what John does at the end of his book is he comes back to the point. He's clearing up some things. right? All the readers of, of John's gospel, it's going to help them that when John dies that he's going to clarify the teaching there. And it's also going to corroborate that Jesus restored Peter, and that's why he had that role, and that that, that that was Jesus' choice. But he's going to come back to the main point in the last two verses. It's this. The message of John's gospel is Jesus. It's not what happened with the guys, right? Um, this kind of cultural trend or anything like this. And in verse 24, he talks about what's written, and in verse 25, he talks about what couldn't possibly be written. 
It's that little contrast again. Verse 24, he says, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. It's very similar to what we see at the end of verse, I'm sorry, at the end of chapter 20, when he talks about, I wrote these things so that you would believe. That's why I wrote it. Why did John sit down and write this book? Lots of authors who write to be read. Um, But they write to be read so that they could be somebody. John writes to be read so that people will put their faith in Jesus. I wrote it so you would believe. And what he, comes, what he says here is that what's written, you can bank on it because it comes from an insider, from somebody who was an eyewitness among others. It's the truth that you're dealing with in the Gospel of John. As we've gone through the Gospel of John, what you have been dealing with and what I have been wrestling with has been the truth. This is who Jesus is. And then he says, I love verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The world itself couldn't contain it. I like that phrase so much, I almost made that the title of the sermon. What does that mean? Is it kind of sounds hyperbolic, right? Is he using hyperbole? We could forgive that with an author, right? You know, it's like, my sorrow is deeper than the sea, that kind of thing. Maybe. I mean, at the very least, we could say when John writes verse 25 to wrap it up, at the very least, he's saying there's more evidence. I wrote this so you'd believe, but there's more there. There's too much there for you to contain in just one reading. Um, I wrote it that you would believe, but there's more out there. So much so that the world itself is not big enough. It's kind of an expression. This is, would we look at that and go, it's a symbolic exaggeration uh, that's, you know, true somehow I, I actually think if you go back to the beginning and you look at the end here it there's a symmetry so I'm going to read this we, we actually read it during the the praise part of this the gospel of John opens this way in the beginning was the word that's Jesus in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And then in verse 5 it says this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. I suppose the world itself could not contain this one who shines in it, couldn't overcome it. It's the same guy. So what do we do with this? Remember, understand and apply. Receive God's word this morning. Let's use Peter as a paradigm here. I think it works. All the things I'm going to say are corroborated in other places in Scripture. Um, Five insights that um, I'm going to give you into discipleship. I'll just lay them out. Five insights into, into discipleship, and we'll use Peter as our paradigm here. The first one is this. The Lord is at once honest and gracious about your failure. You have it. You have your failure, and I have mine. How does the Lord treat you? Well, we, what we tend to expect is one or the other. Somebody's going to be honest, but if they're honest, they're going to be punitive. Or maybe they'll be gracious, but if they're gracious, they're going to minimize what you've done, how you've failed, and Jesus doesn't do either one of those. He's really honest about that but he's good. For example, in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At once, honest, confess our sin, and gracious, 
faithful and just to forgive and cleanse. Jesus is both. Peter's failure is real. Jesus acts like it's real. Peter's failure is totally addressable by the Lord who has a plan for him, has a purpose for him, has a heart for him. And Jesus has a heart to restore you. It's not a surprise to him that you're not, uh, that you've got holes in your game. There's a reason he had to die for you if you were going to be okay. Right? And the work in you is not done. It's, not, it's no surprise to him. But sin is sin, and Jesus has a, restore, uh, has a heart to restore you. But when you've blown it, expect honesty and grace, both of those. It's as though as some people want forgiveness, but no talk of sin. Okay? You can't live that way. If you haven't sinned, there's no need to forgive. There's nothing to forgive. Uh, you, you only need forgiveness if you've actually blown it. But if you have, you know to whom you can turn. Jesus is so good. That was his mission. Jesus gives Peter what Jesus wanted to give Peter. Peter didn't earn it. There's grace there. But there's grace and honesty. Number two, second insight into discipleship. You are not promised ease. That isn't the deal you made with God. Whenever you came to Christ, if you're a believer, it's not that everything was going to work out great for you. I, uh, you know, like Jesus took a hard road. Got that? Peter had a hard road. The apostles had a hard road, and so on. But we might reason it this way. Well, who's Peter? Right? Favorite in the class, we might argue. Peter definitely argued that in, in the realm of his uh, discipleship. Uh, Peter's one of the dudes. He's one of the guy of guys. And he's going to die. And he's going to die in a really hard way. I just want you to think about this. After Jesus gave him these words, you're going to die, you're going to die in this really hard way, Peter lived another 30 years. There are kind of two thoughts about this. One, do you think it's true that Peter, knowing that he was going to die this excruciating death, had this sort of hanging over him? Every day he, he lived with the death sentence hanging over his head. Probably. For 30 years, do you think he was encouraged by the reality that Jesus said this to let him know that he was going to end faithfully? That the way he had blown it, that, that God was going to do this transformation uh, formational turnaround in him so that the way he died, he was going to glorify God. I think he's probably encouraged by that too. But the important insight uh, here, I think, is I see so many people, they know this in their heads. You are not promised ease. You have an eternal hope, an eternal hope. And to value that hope, you have to value things beyond this world. I see so many people who know this in their heads, but they get offended at God when it gets tough. I'm not saying tough is easy. I'm saying it's not surprising. You have some bad days in front of you. Other places, it's not just here. When, um, when Jesus uh, arrests Paul, converts uh, Saul then, right, and brings him into his own, and he says about Saul to Paul, this guy who's going to be an apostle, who loved Jesus so much, this is what he said. He is a chosen instrument of mine. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's Jesus who said that. James, count it joy when the trials come. When the trials come. You're not promised ease. Peter himself, this is later in his ministry. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes. You're not promised ease. It's important that you not base your walk, even if only implicitly, on this kind of a lie. It'll be better. I, God owes me better. You may not understand all the details. As a matter of fact, there's a great likelihood that you're going to, when you go into trial, it creates confusion. 
right? It's fog. You can't see everything clearly. And you don't know the why. You're not going to know the why all the time. You need to know the who. You need to know that you're in somebody else's hands who's better than you. When that empty hope gets proven a lie, it will hurt you if you think it should be better for you. Base your faith, your walk with Jesus on what's true. His promises are actually better than the lie you tell yourself that everything's going to be easier than it should, that it should be easier than it is. You're not promised ease. That's not, that's not what you're given. Number three, on an equally cheery note, you're not promised the same treatment as other disciples. I think this is also a big hang-up. I think people intuitively look around and go, that's not fair. We compare. And we become resentful when someone else gets something good that we don't. Uh, give it, we, we don't give it any thought if, if we get something better than other people. Right? We tend to become arrogant. See if you recognize this person who, whenever their life is going really well and they've got blessing upon blessing and, and there's a lot of joy and it's just streaming to them that they think that the reason that they have that, the ultimate reason that they have that, is that they're doing everything right. In other words, I'm in this spot because of me. If I'm in a bad spot, it's because of the Lord, you know. The Lord doesn't give you the guarantee that your experience is going to be the same experience, let alone a better experience as everybody else's. Let's just say you're a good parent, right? Um, you're a good parent. You have a couple of different kids, and those kids have similar qualities and different qualities. Are you going to treat them exactly the same? Well, yeah, in some ways. You're going to love them. You're going to work for what's best for them, right? They're going to enjoy the same family culture, but there are going to be ways that you treat them differently. If you have a 16-year-old and an 11-year-old, you're going to treat them differently. They're going to have different uh, capabilities. You're going to address their relative strengths differently, their relative weaknesses differently, um, and their interests differently, and so on. And then you see the same thing sort of here. Peter is walking with Jesus. John's traveling along behind him, close enough to be within earshot. And Peter goes, wait, I'm going to die? Not like I'm going to die, die, but I'm going to die, die. Right? Bad die. But, but, what about that guy? Like, shouldn't he die hard too? I mean, one of the most loving things that Peter could say. <laughs> and Jesus tells him those two things. You mind your own business right now. Peter, you don't know a fraction of what you think you do. It's not your place. You wouldn't be any good at it anyway. So why don't you let me be who I am? I'm pretty good at it. I think that's probably a pretty good idea for most of us. Why don't we let Jesus be who he is? He's pretty good at that. You know, Peter's like, he has this thing about fashioning himself out to be a consultant to the Christ. He's no good at that. And what he tells him instead is, mind your own business. You follow me. What is, what is that to you? You don't think I know what I'm doing with John? I, I got John. I got him 100%. Why don't you just follow me? You're going to have your hands full with that. Pause. You don't think the Lord Jesus knows what he's doing with so-and-so? He's got him 100%. You, you just follow Jesus. That's all you're called to do. That's your well done. Not the other people. Just Jesus. Uh, or we can say it the other way. Why don't you mind your own business? Right? There's so many Christians for whom it rocks them spiritually and brings on a serious distraction when somebody else gets a blessing that they don't. It's as though they think they've wrestled with this. Like, if, if I uncovered something unjust in God, 
When what's simply being revealed is their own character. Listen, to love like you've been loved means this. You want a nutshell? When somebody you love is sad, you know what you do? You cry with them. And when the Lord Jesus in his perfect wisdom has blessed somebody, you know what you do? You celebrate God with them. That's what you do. And in both of those cases, in one instance, maybe the Lord has treated somebody, quote unquote, better than you, and in another, worse than you. But if you love them, your heart is connected to them, and you're going to have the capacity to share their joy and share their sorrow with them. That's what it means to love them, right? The worst, quote unquote, friends in the world are the people who won't do these two things. They don't have it in them. If you want to ask yourself something, when somebody has it, quote unquote, better than I do, do am, I, am I happy for them? And if you don't have the capacity to do that, you, that's a check. It's a real check on your heart. There's a whole other sermon there. Number four, uh, the greatest enemy, enemy of faithful discipleship can be self. When Jesus gives a call to a disciple, if anybody would follow after me, he has to deny himself. In this passage, what Jesus does is he takes Peter's focus away from this kind of Peter-centric view to loving God, to following him, to caring for others. It's interesting in the Christian faith how the self doesn't get supersized. Right? You don't get a big ton of self in the Christian faith. When the comparisons come in, they get in the way. Peter, do you love me more? Peter says to Jesus, what about him? And here's the point. You'll never be able to make it all about Jesus when you're busy making it all about yourself. For some people, the most important toxic relationship they need to resolve is the one they have with themselves. You're going to have to get over yourself if you're going to be a faithful disciple of Jesus. Are you consumed with yourself? It gets in the way. You've been called to the Lord and to others to love them like you've been loved. And the funny thing, it's only when you do this that you actually find yourself. Right? You want to be happy? Intuitively, what you do is you go, well, if I'm going to be happy, I've got to pursue my happiness. I've got to elevate myself. You just weren't made that way. You, you were made relationally. You want to be happy? It's the counterintuitive thing. You're going to have to give yourself away. It's, it's actually that when you love God and you love others that you find yourself. And funny enough, that's where your, your joy and your security just seems to come along with that. Um, Jesus said it this way, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Notice the focus, Jesus, even in this passage, Peter, follow me. Peter, care for my sheep. Jesus told Peter to, uh, what he did about his death to show what, by what kind of death he would glorify God. Uh, John was a witness to these things. These things is the witness of the, uh, the uncontainable Christ. The, the promises and hope of this all come together in him. For example, Colossians 1. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. There's just Christ. The point of faithful discipleship is Christ. The enemy of faithful discipleship can be self, but the point of faithful discipleship is Christ. There's no second, there's no alternative. So I just want to wrap up and tell you, here's my prayer. If you remember, I'm sure you do, because this is probably just a few weeks back when we started the Gospel of John. When we started, this is my prayer for the congregation and for myself. My prayer was simply this, that as we would encounter the book, we would encounter the person. 
right? The, the gospel of John is about Jesus. As we encounter the gospel of John, we would really wrestle with and encounter the person that this gospel is about. And so here's how I would flesh this out. Two things. My prayer is that you would believe. That's the whole point of the book. John says it. John says it because Jesus says it, and Jesus says it because if you're going to be saved, that's what you have to do. You're not going to get in on your own merit. You're going to get in by trusting him on what he's accomplished. You'll be saved by faith, not by works. You have to believe. So I pray that you believe. The point of the whole book, that by believing you would have life in his name. Also pray that you would follow no matter what. Jesus is worthy. There's just Jesus. That you wouldn't make an idol of ease. That you wouldn't trip over somebody else's path. That you get over yourself and follow Jesus, knowing that you're better off in his hands than in your own. And in the world, it might look like your life is way off. Just remember, in eternity, it won't. Let's pray. Lord, that's what I pray. I pray that those of us in the room would believe and that by believing we would have life in your name and uh, that we would follow no matter what. That we would hear the rebuke of, what is that to you? Right? We know that you have our brothers and sisters. We know that... Uh, that you have the world. Give us a focus just on pleasing you and following you, that we will follow you. And would you be glorified in those two things? It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.